Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. Um, we were originally going to be talking today about pixel art. We have a couple of guests that we've invited on who are pixel artists, really, really good artists, that are going to join us for that, but they're not going to be able to be on until next week. Mm-hmm. So in the wake of the controversial season finale or not season finale, series finale, of Game of Thrones. Um, A show that I followed pretty much from the beginning. Um, Going to talk about the writing. And uh, as Captain Ironbat says, season seven started this BS. I actually think it started in season five, personally. But Hmm. we will talk about that later. First, let's talk first about... uh, this Square Enix novel, Final Fantasy XV, The Dawn of the Future. We've mentioned it briefly uh, before on the podcast, the fact that it was coming, but there there wasn't like a release date for it in English. People were wondering when it's going to come. So uh, this article posted on Silicon Era says that Square Enix has revealed it's working with Penguin Random House to begin directly releasing some of its manga series in English outside of Japan. Penguin, while it previously, okay. Yeah, while it previously licensed series like Soul Eater to companies like Yen Press, it will now be working with Penguin Random House to begin distribution of certain titles in fall of 2019. So far, three Square Enix manga series and one novel have been revealed as part of this collaboration. Soul Eater, for example, will be getting a complete edition release. A Man and His Cat and High Score Girl will both be released. This is also how people will be able to acquire Final Fantasy XV, The Dawn of the Future, in English. As a reminder, this is the novel that will go over the canceled add-ons and tell the story of what would have happened uh, in book form. Hmm. So, I'm pretty sure that... I know for sure that this encapsulates the planned DLC that was supposed to be the Noctis... uh, episode or whatever it may also include elements of some of the others like the Aranea and Lunafreya ones too uh, but remember how they were talking about how there was going to be like an alternate ending to Final yes, Fantasy 15 I do remember that I'm pretty certain that this book is going to be providing that Okay. so anybody who huh. cares anymore about that it's coming in fall we still don't know an exact date but it's coming in fall 2019. That's when you can expect to, uh, yeah. to read that. You know, real quick, I want to kind of mention something. I watched a video from um, the Night Sky Prince, I think, talking about yes. Final Fantasy VII and how it's going to be multiple parts. Yes. And how, in his opinion, it's a good thing. Yes. Because of what happened to Final Fantasy XV. Now, if you guys are aware of the history, Final Fantasy XV was versus thirteen. It was initially planned to be a series of like three movies. Or sorry, three games. Um, Kingsglaive eventually became just a movie prequel to the game. And then the game covered kind of the middle-ish end or something like that. And then there's all this extra DLC and all these other things that they kind of pushed into their media mix, like, you know, multi-media approach. And um, I would not say that that has gone super well. And so because they had so much content for Final Fantasy 15 that they weren't able to put in the game but had to really put all sorts of other places um having final fantasy 7 be just multiple parts uh kind of avoids a lot of the nonsense and a lot of the the crap and the workarounds and the multimedia mix approach that they had to do for final fantasy 15 
because it wasn't all able to be put in the game. So just wanted to throw that out there. I watched Night Sky Prince talk about that. I found it actually pretty convincing and it it kind of eased my emotions a little bit on the idea of Final Fantasy VII Remake being a, a multi-part game, like full price each time. Mm. Uh, Swan Knight says, does Final Fantasy XV have world building good enough to justify this kind of novel? Um, I actually think hmm. it does. Of all the things that I like most about Final Fantasy XV, it is its world. Like, that I, one of the things that I found most interesting, I think it has a lot of really interesting lore. Even though a lot of it, I feel, that was suggested from the Versus 13 project, I think would have been more interesting. There's still, like, a lot of really cool stuff there. Um, the world I find is actually really, really pretty interesting. It's one of my favorite parts of the game. So, um, but I don't know if this kind of novel is going to be much about world building as much as it is about trying to wrap up some more loose ends with characters that they, because that's one of the, the largest criticisms of 15 was that it feels rushed. It's story feels rushed. A lot of the character moments were left out and sold separately as DLC instead of included in the story. It felt incomplete uh, from a storytelling perspective. And so while the DLCs, mm. for the most part, have not satisfied that even, even though they've added all this extra stuff, it still doesn't really feel that way to me. Um, I assume that these, this will mostly be focused on characters like Noctis and Lunafreya, not so much on like fleshing out the world. But I don't know. We'll have to wait and find out. Hmm. Um, okay. So that is that. Well, let's move on now to our next piece of news, which is that Game of Thrones and Ice and Fire creator, George R.R. R. Martin, uh, he had a blog post where he suggested he's working with From Software, the creators of Dark Souls, yeah. Bloodborne, and Sekiro. Uh, that they're collaborating on a project that will allegedly be revealed at this year's E3. Put the uh, article up here. With the TV show out of the way, George R.R. R. Martin is back to his old tricks stirring up internet rumors. A few months back, there was wild whisper that Martin was working with Souls developer From Software collaboratively on a project, but there was very little in the way of evidence that is actually happening, that it was actually happening. But just recently, the day after the HBO show was finished, uh, airing, he published a precarious message on his official blog. I've consulted on a video game out of Japan. And there it is. According to a report by Gematsu, I actually don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that website, but the project, <laughs> the project is internally referred to as GR and will be an open world horse enabled project. <laughs> a horse enabled project. What the heck? <laughs> I didn't read that part earlier. That's funny. Um, <laughs> that involves famed yeah. director uh, Hidetaki Hede, Miyazaki. I think that's how you say his name. Gematsu also notes that it will be revealed during Microsoft's E3 press conference, which would oh, certainly cool. bring the horse or the house down. I said horse again. Bring the house <laughs> down on a day when they have no competition from Sony, who backed out from E3 right. proper. We'll see it when we see it. So what is Martin doing beyond that? Well, he's allegedly back to writing when's winter. Okay, whatever. So anyways, there's a, a pretty good chance that uh, we might get a... Well, I don't know what role he played 
collaboratively in this, whether he like wrote it or just like consulted or whatever. Yeah. But we could have. I mean, I mean, of all the, if you, I mean, you take a really dark fantasy sort of rooted developer like from software and a dark fantasy writer like Georgia. I mean, those two things are going to go pretty well together, I would think. Yeah. So it depends on how much they actually used him or if they just wanted his name, you know? Yeah. Uh, Captain Iron uh, Bat saying CD Projekt Red would have been better. Maybe he can consult um, with them too if they want. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I think that they, uh, their operations a little smaller at CD Projekt Red than at From Software. I don't know that for sure, but it seems like From brings up more games. They have a couple of different teams working on different things, right? I think mm. CD Projekt Red is still pretty much one project Just at a time. Just one group? Yeah. Mm. Not to say that it's small per se. I mean, I'm sure they have a couple hundred employees mm. working on that one project, but uh, it, it does make me wonder about how... how because I haven't played Sekiro yet. I still really want to play it. Like, the way the story was handled in Sekiro, I'm not entirely sure. But traditionally, from software games are exploratory. You go and you read descriptions and you kind of piece the story together. It's not, there's not a lot of like prose <laughs> and like yeah. n- traditional narrative, right? So it would just be conceptual. Yeah. So I wonder if he, if they, if they collaborated with someone like him, if he's just there to like create a set of lore, I don't know why they would need him to do that. They're already good at that. So I would think he would actually be writing something. Right. Yeah. You think so. Um, do, do they have, we don't know what game this is though, right? No, we don't know. We just know that it's, uh, like they said, the, the project is referred to internally as GR, whatever that means. So anyways, not much to go on, but, Something to look forward to for E3. Cool. Final piece of news. Sonic the Hedgehog, the movie, has been delayed to fix the nightmare-inducing design. So they're <laughs> actually taking it seriously. I'm impressed. I didn't think they would. Yep. They, there's a tweet here uh, with the date, uh, February 14th, 2020. So, it's ah, so it was going to be like November or October? I can't remember. It was supposed to be fall this year. Fall. So they delayed it a couple months. Cool. Good. So, um, and and the tweet from Jeff Fowler says, taking a little more time to make Sonic just right. Okay. Uh, and then and then also hashtag no VFX artists were harmed in the making of this movie. Whatever, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the funny thing, though. They had to have tested Sonic's designs, right? They had to have I would. Think I would so. think that they would had to have gone through and, you know, th- this would have shown very quickly right off the bat that this design doesn't work. Like some something got missed really big there, and I, I'll bet you the producers are not happy about it. Yep. Um, so let's just see what they say here in the article. Sorry, Sega fans. You'll need to wait a little longer to see the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Paramount pushed back the release date three months uh, to give I don't the think filmmakers they care. <laughs> a little more time to make Sonic just right. You may recall, mm-hmm. if you hadn't quite shaken the nightmare of Sonic's humanoid teeth from your memory, there was an overwhelming backlash to the movie's take on the iconic blue hedgehog when the first trailer dropped last month. He didn't much resemble the speedy mammal we've known for decades from the games. Soon after, director Jeff Fowler promised design changes. Thankfully, the film's digital effects artists won't have to rush 
rushed too much to implement the changes in time for the initial November release date. The Sonic the Hedgehog movie will now hit theaters on February 14th. Oh, whoops, I think I read that wrong. Maybe I didn't, I can't remember. February 14th of next year. Let's hope the redesign hits the sweet spot. We can all fall in love with Sonic again next Valentine's Day. Um, so, you know, we had been... The reason I wanted to bring this up because it's something we had discussed on the podcast uh, yeah. previously. Um, we had been worried about what they could change what was even be possible to change yeah, given a the time frame. Yeah. So obvious this, this lends credence to the assumption that they're making large changes. Yeah. They're not just going to widen his eyes or whatever. Yeah. They're going <laughs> to yeah. redesign the character and re-render Which is all good. those shots. Which is good. So it's good for fans who hated the design. Sucks for all the dudes who have to... <laughs> redo all that work but well what is this so three extra months of visual effects artists you know i mean it's not cheap no it costs a lot of money expensive mistake to make especially when remember we even talked about on the podcast a really long time ago when it was just the first teaser image of the yeah with his legs going out and i was like we were like this "This is not good like everyone knew it then yeah and I remember the director obvious. tweeting and being like, "Trust me, when you see it in motion, like it's it's it looks right." And it's like, yeah. "Dude, no, it doesn't." And everyone knew it. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're gonna pay a lot of money for making that mistake. So, yeah. and they even they also released that like silhouette of Sonic without mm-hmm. seeing his facial features. You still could tell he looked weird. Something was he wrong. Looked, his torso was too long, and like everything just wasn't right. And yep. they still were like, don't worry. <sighs> anyway, They really should have tested that design, man. They should have. So, uh, anyways, they're going to they're gonna take more time on it. And I think you can expect pretty uh, substantial design changes to the character. So. Yeah, since they're delaying it, I think so, too. It's good stuff. Okay. Might watch the movie. The story still looked like it sucked. <laughs> so. that, that, I mean, that's just... I probably won't, still won't watch it. But think about all the extra time and effort and work that will go into changing the look of Sonic, and then the movie. And still, the movie's still just really bad. I mean, can't really fix that, you know. Well, yeah. you could. You could spend the time. Well, you have to reshoot everything. Center mind. You can't fix it. It's already been shot. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, Game of Thrones. G O T. Um. Initially, I didn't want to talk about this. Um, well, I kind of did, but as I looked at how many videos have been produced talking about and arguing about mm-hmm. the quality of the show over the years and especially in the last season, I mean, it, it, my mind was blown by how many videos I saw up there kind of going over the same sentiments. You know, it's, I felt like, there's not really anything that I feel like I can necessarily add to this conversation. Um, but as I continue to read people's discussions with each other about it, I, I started to realize some of the really bad argumentation that people use to either justify their enjoyment of season eight or whatever Mm -hmm. um or people who don't really understand the reasons why they don't like something 
and having a really yeah. hard time putting voice or like a, a solid reason behind yeah like, like articulating why they, like why they didn't like it yeah yeah. And I was like, you know what? I think I do want to try and like take a stab at this and and maybe put a perspective out there that will help some people who felt really dissatisfied with it like from a storytelling perspective, not from a you know, just a a person who's a fan of the show and watched it for many years and became invested in the characters and is upset about this character's story ending this way. Like I didn't want that to happen. Right. Um, so, <laughs> oh man, this is such a can of worms, and it's it's been so controversial. And well, I, but, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this. I've heard everyone's thoughts about this <laughs> except for yours so far. So, a little bit of background, I guess, on um, my history with the show and stuff. Um, I think it was back in 2012 ish. When I started watching it, it's when we were living in um, Bountiful Court, I think. Yeah. And um, obviously was completely blown away by that first season. Um, I, I, okay, before I do this, this should be obvious, but there's going to be some pretty big spoilers in this conversation. So yeah. if you if you have plans to watch the show or to read the books or anything like that... Um, and you don't want it spoiled, you probably just should leave. This is going to be a long conversation. There's not going to be like a... I'm, I'm just giving a blanket statement spoiler warning for the yeah. whole thing. I'm not going to be able to control when <laughs> they come and don't come out. So, But I, um, I have... If for people like that, I have another question, though, which is how in the world have you avoided spoilers up to this point? I know. It's been... <laughs> Being on the internet at all. Like, I, I'm impressed. But yeah, by all means, bow out. Um, Sale Moves brings up uh, B-Tongue. Um, that's a great YouTube channel if you guys have not heard of uh, Mr. B-Tongue. And he's done some videos and he's written a little bit on Game of Thrones. He's a, he's a big no fan of the novels. Um, and I, I love his thoughts on it. So anyone who wants to go check out Mr. B-Tongue and watch his videos on Game of Thrones, I agree a lot with a lot of the things that, uh, that he says. But um, anyways... So what, what I want to try to avoid here is any kind of statement about, like, this choice for the character uh, is one that I didn't like, and so that's why it was wrong, right? That's what a lot of people are doing. They're like, oh, Danny would not have done this because whatever. And then you have people firing back like, well, it's been foreshadowed from the beginning. I will address that particular thing later. But I don't think any of that is really what's wrong with the the writing in the show. Um, a lot of people, it's been it's been really strange to me how vehement the backlash to season eight has been. Um, because I was all I had already written the show off. I was only watching <laughs> this last season because I had invested so much time and I just wanted to get to the end. Yeah. But since season five, really, I have felt that the show's storytelling has really been in decline. And season seven in particular was where I was like, it's it's completely jumped the shark. The th it is, mm. It's truly just not good anymore. And so I, I remember coming into season eight 
having the lowest possible expectations and it was still unbelievably disappointing somehow so hmm. i, I want to start out um by talking about what the purpose of storytelling is i did a video i used to do a series called understanding story on the youtube channel the main youtube channel and my very first episode was uh payoff without setup and it was about final fantasy 15 storytelling um and my main sort of like thesis for that video was that the game has all of these big um attempts at emotional payoffs without giving us any proper setup to those things. Um, Final Fantasy XV spoilers incoming for the next probably 45 seconds. Three, two, one, go. Um, Luna Freya's death was a big one for me, um, where we just didn't know that character well enough to really feel the impact they were trying to show they were trying to bestow through the way they were executing that scene um same with like noctis's death in the end uh with his father being there and like you know turning away from it like there just wasn't a relationship between those characters that i felt any sort of like emotional tie to how they might be feeling in that moment um, there's a million examples of that, uh, with, uh, even with, um, Prompto, you know, like revealing who he really is and the whole group's just like, whatever, man, it's all good. Like just mm -hmm. mounts to nothing. There's all of these examples of these payoffs that are meant to be really strong, but because they had no setup, there was no, uh, time given for exposition, they fall flat. And so my entire, uh, that entire video is about how you have to properly set up and pay off. And that's what storytelling is, is set up, pay off, set up, pay off, set up, pay off. You, you, you establish something, you foreshadow it, and then uh, you pay it off down the line. And if you've properly established that thing, the payoff will be satisfying. Um, today, I want to add to that uh, an extra part, because I think there is something missing from just saying it's just about set up and pay off. It's not just about that. You have to tie the two in between with development. Setup, development, payoff, right? So, for instance, a lot of people will say uh, Daenerys' turn into becoming the Mad Queen, right? There are people like, that comes out of nowhere. Like, what the, what the freak? Like, she just, like, goes crazy for no reason. A lot of people are making that argument and a lot of people are like you're just not paying attention to the show you haven't watched it the right way because remember here and here and here where she did these really ruthless and cruel things along the way she's always been a person capable of this you just weren't paying attention um so two things regarding that one all of those examples that i've seen people use to establish, like, uh, when she um, burns the witch alive who, like, had uh, done, like, the, the black magic and, like, killed her baby and stuff from season one, uh, the way that she, like, I can't remember, it's, like, one of her, like, one of her, like, handmaidens, I forget her name, and then, like, the guy who became, like, the king of Karth, they, like, she just, like, locked him inside of a vault and just let them starve to death. Um, she crucified slave owners. 
um, burned people. You know, there's all these examples of this ruthlessness, just this cruel nature of her execution of people. And and people are like, see, all of that is foreshadowing. They, they bring up a specific line. Um, I will take, I, I'm butchering my summation of what she says, but I will take it, meaning the, the, the seven kingdoms, with fire and blood, I will take it. So people are like, see, see, all along she's been saying all of this. And then in season three, episode three, you have Jorah Mormont telling her that this is the, you're going to have to do some, some messed up stuff on your way to becoming, you know, queen of Westeros. Like you're going to have to make some hard choices. You're going to have to be a bit ruthless. And she says right there, and this is so funny to me that no one brings up this example in all the videos I've seen on it. No one talks about this specific example. She says specifically, not innocence. I will not harm innocence. I will not harm those who are oppressed. I will be ruthless and cruel only to those who are doing the oppressing. That was her entire freaking like center of her morality. <laughs> mm. Right. And so it was very well established. If you are really watching and paying attention that there's a hard line drawn there. And So it's not inconceivable that she could then be pushed over an edge and change, right? It's, so, so for people saying, oh, I loved that character. They ruined that character because they made this choice and she turns and becomes evil or whatever, you know, becomes crazy and willing to kill. That's totally possible. That payoff is something that can be done. But in order for us to get there, you have to have development in between the setup and the payoff. You could use some of those um, moments of cruelty as foreshadowing, sure. But that's not the same thing as character development. You have to then demonstrate through a number of scenarios the, the, the character's mind shifting, hard choices having to be made. And, and it felt so entirely contrived to me the way that they tried to do that in like an episode's worth of time because you have like john there right and and all the people who have gotten to know him over know him over the years and love him and and follow him into battle and stuff they're all sitting there congratulating him celebrating and and, and she's just looking at it and she gets all this fear but like, ooh, they love him more than me, <laughs> right? And we're supposed to go from that to she's betraying her entire, like, moral center. Even though the people, the innocent people of King's Landing were not in the way, they, they were not preventing her from taking back, or from taking the kingdom. She, there, there, was, there was no series of events that was thoughtful and nuanced the way that the, the season or that the show was written for the first three or four seasons where there's just all this time put into each character and we see and understand and believe the choices they make because we see it from their point of view. Um, they rushed the ending so much for these characters 
and the, and they they lacked the development between the setup and the payoff that much of it ended up feeling um well contrived is the right word now that's going to be kind of like the the center of where where I'm I'm arguing from for the rest of this that's that's just the premise we can get into details and if people have questions they can ask me about them as we go because I'm sure that I won't with a show this long, with a story this long, with as many characters as there are. There's going to be certain things that I'm going to skim over or forget to talk about. It's just inevitable. There's there's too much to go over. But that's kind of going to be the basis of where I'm coming from. It's not it's not the fact that the characters ended here. It's that we have very specific promises made in the beginning. Most of those things were either abandoned or very lazily paid off because they didn't want to mess with it, didn't want to take the time to create like a a really well thought out, nuanced resolution to that uh, setup, or because they were just rushing to get it done because they have a brighter opportunity on the horizon. The showrunners do with Star Wars. So, before I continue into the next several rambly parts i'm going to say uh is there anything in the comments or do you have anything to add to that case tons of people have been talking (laughs) but i i don't even really know where to start but everyone's just kind of giving their two cents about it uh one of the big things that people are are talking about here is whether or not this ending is is technically canon and i i am aware of this to some degree i know that for the most part these producers, writers, they did whatever they wanted to. Uh, but there was a point some time back when George R. R. Martin technically did provide them with an outline, like a rough um, synopsis of what, how the show was supposed to end from his point of view. Right mm. now, how much of that was discarded, how much of that was used, how much of that, um, how much of what we have seen is actually what the book that he's currently writing was, is going to be contained in it. Um, I think nobody really knows at the moment, but I always thought that it was like, Oh, they're not following the book anymore. The show sucks now go figure. Right. But um, it's entirely possible because George R. R. Martin has kind of stopped writing the book that the reaction to this show might actually be affecting him a little bit. Um, because this is how his book is supposed to end and people hate it. And he's kind of like, I don't want to write this book anymore. So that's kind of, I don't know. There, there's a lot of, um, I guess, argument about whether or not this ending is canon. And we won't know for a very long time, I think. This, um, this to yeah. me is reminiscent of uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Yes, I. that's always what I think of. Yeah. Yeah, as Velhart just said, Game of Thrones Brotherhood. <laughs> Game of Thrones um, Brotherhood. They need to remake it. When, because the manga was still in the middle of being produced, written, whatever, when the show passed it up and kind of went into its own ending. And a lot of people thought the ending of the original Full Metal Alchemist show was pretty bad. Mm. Um, And I think it's for similar reasons, right? You have an author, the original creator of the story, who 
I mean, it, it, when, when, they, when they're good writers, like I think both examples are. George Martin, I think, is a good writer. I think that, I, I don't know her name, the, the original manga, creator of the manga for Vilma Alchemist. They're very good writers who really understand the structure, the underlying structure of storytelling. This, this concept of talking about, about setup and payoff, development in between, right? Like you don't just, this is what, what is referred to as Chekhov's gun mm. in storytelling. Uh, Chekhov's gun is essentially, well, the, the, I guess the actual definition is a, a dramatic principle that states that every element in a story must be necessary and irrelevant elements should be removed. That's not a hard rule for me necessarily. Like right, anything right. irrelevant should be taken out. But the next part is elements should not appear to make false promises by never coming into play. Right? Mm-hmm. So... There are many, many, many examples of Chekhov's gun in the way that this story unfolded. Uh, and again, I think it's because you have an original creator who was not only, you know, he got up to a certain point in the story and we, we passed that. But you're also handing off the story to a totally different set of people. Hmm. And their ideas about what was important and what wasn't and you know what we should focus on is going to be different from the original person so i think it's inevitable that some of those initial setups will be kind of lost in translation so to speak because those creators the new creators the people it's being handed off to might not have seen those as being very important to the theme or relevant for whatever reason or maybe they feel like they're time constrained. And so it's like, I'm going to just this, 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 and this, and this, <laughs> we need to just kind of like brush aside and focus on this and, and, and just get here somehow. And I think we have two really strong examples with game of Thrones and with full metal alchemist where that happened, where it was clear that the intention of the author with that setup was they were, they were obviously going to pay it off <laughs> in this way and it, that, that was clear mostly even to the audience but mm. the showrunners decided not to do that and this has come up a lot with even with the last uh, major Star Wars episode right um, with subverting expectations yeah. there was a, 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 a talk that it wasn't really a talk it was like a, an interview but it was like on a stage in front of like an audience that George Martin was giving where he was talking about his point was mostly about internet culture and how, you know, back in the day, maybe one in a thousand readers would have picked up on like the, the secret of what was being implanted or Mm. promised or hinted at. But now with internet culture, that person goes online and shares it and everyone goes like, Oh yeah, that makes so much sense. That's totally it. That's definitely. And, and so people know the, they know the secret. They know what you're building up to. And his point was, now do I go back and do I change that because people figured it out and just disregard all of that work I did, all the foreshadowing, all of the exposition? Do I just change it because people guessed the answer and abandon good storytelling? No, that's that's terrible. Like, you, right. you, you, we already did all that work setting it up. You have to continue the course in order for it to remain consistent with itself, to remain uh Anyways, I think you know what I mean. Yeah. So I want to talk about a few things 
that I felt were very clearly set up to be important. Do I know what the ending was, what George's intended ending for that character was? No. Or what the use of this particular plot element was going to be? Not necessarily. But I do know that when an author who understands good storytelling spends that much time talking about it and dedicates that much time to it, that it's meant to be important. It's meant to play a factor somehow into the story. And one of the most glaring ones to me was Winter. Like, in the first and second season, they talk so freaking much about Winter and how awful Winter is and how nobody who was born in the summer could possibly even understand how horrendous winter is in this world they talk about people just never being able to get warm uh, mothers and with with babies in their arms freezing in their castles with fires going just like they talk about how it, they, they make mention in king's landing even we have enough wheat for five years and if the winter's longer than that people are going to start dying and they're going to start turning against you and this was a reason why the lannisters needed to be not so cruel and they needed to rein joffrey in because the people are going to freaking turn against us in the winter like the winter was a huge thing they spent so much time talking about winter and in the show winter was like a complete non-factor had absolutely nothing to do with anything. It didn't affect anything. And so that's, that is a perfect example of Chekhov's gun. And, and I'm telling you, there's probably at least like five or six scenes of people talking for several minutes at a time about how awful winter is. Winter is coming was like the words of the freaking Starks. Like (laughs) it was so important and it played no factor in the story by the end. Uh, affected nothing. The, the winter oh. was basically pretty mild. I've seen worse winters in places I've lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is it. Nothing. And it had no effect on anything. That's probably, of all the things I'm going to talk about, the best example of, of Chekhov's gun, of having a a very like strong premise or foreshadowing or hint about something that's going to play a role and then it doing nothing. But there's so many others. And I think the most disappointing when it comes to characters was Bran Stark. Again, uh, rewatching the first couple of seasons, Mm. Bran Stark was a huge element of the show with so much screen time. I mean, right from the very beginning, his visions uh, the three-eyed raven uh, having to go north. Over, it, it was it was made very clear he was the number one key to stopping the Night King. It was right. him. It was on him. He was the one who was going to have to get this done. Um, and he had he had a personality. It was so <laughs> this boy who had like been through all this hardship and been paralyzed and. And the way he he spoke and emoted and interacted with the characters. You had Asha and Rickon and uh, those other kids. Forget their name. The ones that help him get over the wall with Hodor and everything. But these were these were great characters with a lot of really good chemistry and a, a really strong purpose. A really really strong purpose in the show. Lots of time and exposition and foreshadowing and setup dedicated to that storyline. And Bran, in the end, once he finally becomes the Three-Eyed Raven, sits around and does absolutely nothing. Nothing. 
Nothing at all. Not one thing does he do. He doesn't. And 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 I had almost completely forgotten about this. This is also something I want to talk about. I had almost completely forgotten about the fact that he could warg into people, into other humans. And this was like unheard of. You could only warg into animals. You could only take over this wolf and run around as this wolf for a while or as that bird and go and like spy and look around and like see things. You couldn't warg into people. He he controlled Hodor. He he took control of a man. And that was like a holy crap moment that was like, no one can do that. No one can do that. Why is he not using this at all in the conclusion of the show? His powers are useless. He does nothing with it. I have some thoughts for this, actually. Go for it. As somebody who, and this is funny, this might come as a surprise to a lot of you. I have not watched this show. <laughs> <laughs> I watched episode one when it first aired, like that first like day or two. Um, I watched the show and I decided I, I wasn't going to watch anymore. It was, it was cool, but I just felt like I didn't want to keep watching it. So <laughs> this happens to me all the time. I watched the first episode of Breaking Bad. And I've only ever seen the first episode. I watched the first episode of The Walking Dead. I was like, that was awesome. But I just never watched another. I don't know. So that's how, that's my experience with Game of Thrones. However, understanding that Bran, there's, there's these two things, essentially. Now, I have a question for you, first of all. Can Bran, essentially, can Bran see the future? Yeah. They, they and hint at it largely. Two, yeah. does Bran end up being the king? Yes. That's all you, so the way, from my point of view, having not seen the show, that is all you need to know to understand what happens, right? Now, you may not know the character, you may feel betrayed by what he did, but he knew what was going to happen, and whatever he did or did not do is what ultimately led to him being on the throne. Now, he could have stopped certain things, he could have kept certain people from dying, whatever, Whatever his motivations were, he ultimately becomes the king, and he knew that from the beginning. So, like, there you go. Like, well, he didn't know it from the very beginning. He knows not from it, the very beginning. I, I would say he knows it after he becomes three-eyed raven, and he becomes this just flat, emotionless character. Yeah, that doesn't do anything after that. And, what season I mean, would that be around? Uh, five or six. Can't remember exactly when. Yeah, somewhere around there. I know there was one, at least one season where he was almost not in it the whole thing. It might have been season six, but then he actually. <laughs> Anyways, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, so people are saying Bran let 500,000 people die so he could be king. Um, I don't know if you know much about kings in <laughs> medieval times, but that's basically all of them would do that. Um, I haven't seen the show, though, so it's entirely possible. So he was here's... built up to be this very emotional guy. And then it's like a betrayal of the character that he would let these things happen. Um, but, you know, being king, I mean, that's pretty motivating, right? I Okay, so here's my rebuttal to that. Because there is something in, there is something to be said about the fact that when you, when you know the future and you know all the events are coming, you, there is, you don't really need to do anything. You kind of just need to let it happen, right? That, mm -hmm. is, that is a fine sort of like, I guess, initial defense for the choice. But it sure. certainly is not satisfying storytelling. No, that is actually a very good point. <laughs> and it also does nothing for the development of that character's arc. You don't learn right. anything from it. And it establishes this sense of fate uh, that I've always not liked. When, when, when you make fate completely 
um, unchangeable in a story, right? It's like, uh, this is yeah. what's going to happen. I already know the future. I already know the ending. So whatever. Then, it just takes, it yeah. sucks all of the conflict out of it. It's, it's there's no longer any, any um, tension. Sure. You know what? Right? I would equate this seeing the future. I would equate that almost to time travel in some sense. It ruins stories. It completely ruins stories because First off, why couldn't they have seen this happening ahead of time? Or why couldn't they have done anything about it? Or why didn't they just time travel? Or why didn't they just look into the future this one time? Like, it, it's so not a part of human life, despite the fact that it's such an interesting thing that humans think about all the time, is like, it just ruins stories. It just completely ruins them. You, you should not add time travel or future-seeing elements in any of your stories ever. Unless there are limits to it, like oh, unless you limit it, sure, sure. There Did are, Bran there, have th- limits? Well, not once he became three eyed raven. Okay, see that's but, a problem because <laughs> he could just he just saw it all. Because the whole yeah. idea behind the three eyed raven is is this person has the entire human history in their mind. They they become like the the, the, tome the oracle of, yeah. that has like the entire experience of every human being that's ever lived in them, and he talks mm. mostly about living in the past. Because there, there were a couple of moments that I thought were actually interesting ideas because he is completely emotionless. He's like not even the same person anymore. But it's like, well, when you have the experiences, the combined experiences of every person who's ever lived in you, yeah, you're not really the same person anymore. I mean, that's I get that. Point. That's fine. Sure. But and there was a moment where there was a character saying, like, what is it that you want? I think it was it might have been Tyrion asking him this. Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't really want anymore. You know what I mean? I mostly live in the past. I mostly just am overwhelmed by all of these things that have that i know all this knowledge i'm not even really human anymore right that's kind of a cool concept i'm 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 okay with that but future seeing i think works in stories when you don't know for sure it's like you get a glimpse yeah it's like i have a i have a i have a forewarning of something that might happen but i don't know for sure but when you actually see the entire conclusion and you know exactly how it's going to go down. And that character, that's, that means there's no tension left, right? right? Also, just because, I don't know. He he also wasn't a character that I think wanted to be the king. So the idea that, you know, he would have allowed all the horrible things to happen and he knew I'm going to be king in the end, so it's going to be all good. He's not that type of person to where he desired the throne anyways. Here's something that I would like to throw out about that as well. Now, you don't get to leadership positions like this, especially in medieval times, without corruption like this. That it just happens, right? The question is, what can he do as king to make life better? So a lot of people have to die for him to become the king. And, and that sucks, right? People, and that's human history. People fight wars, you know, people drop bombs, people do all sorts of really bad stuff so that they can have the power to shape things after that point in the future, right? And I don't, we, we, we don't know, I guess, unless they do something crazy, what exactly happens in the future. But, but it, Bran could still essentially be viewed as a sort of kind of maybe good person despite having let these bad things happen because of what he feels he can do about it after, but he has to be king in order to do it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And I think, and, and this is a lot of politics in a lot of places, I think justifying... and a lot of times, a lot of like the revolutionary war in the United States. I mean, a lot of people had to die so that they could make the decisions that led to hundreds of years of prosperity afterwards. Yeah. It's the, the needs of the many 
well there's yeah st- there's still a many who had to die but it, the needs of the future the unborn <laughs> the unborn future many outweigh yes. the needs of the the current comparatively few current people. yeah it's hard to look at things <laughs> that way but when you're a king and you're over these millions of people you kind of need to see the big picture it's it's not enough to just, just to say oh let's let's save this handful of people knowing what's going to happen in the future i i don't um I don't actually disagree with that premise. So yeah. I'll say that, like, you know, if you're going to make that, if you're going to make that the, the character's motivation, first of all, you should probably try to yeah, say that somehow. you got to hint at some point that there is but, some reason why he's doing what he's doing. But it doesn't, it doesn't really affect the underlying criticism I have with the show, which is that they set him up very, very strongly because George Martin wrote a lot of the uh, episodes of the show too, right? Like he was. Oh, involved. I've heard that. He, yeah. he, he wrote them for television. He actually wrote the screenplays for mm. a lot of the episodes, especially in like the season three range, um, where a lot of this foreshadowing happens. With like, I am going to be the one. It's up to me to like go do this so that I can stop the Night King. Is the heavy implication there? And he it doesn't. He just sits there. And lets it all happen, and that to me is, um, it's it's disconnected from its initial premise. It's well, it's a payoff that does not logically follow from its setup. That's actually sort of along the lines of something Hat eighty nine mentioned. He says it may have been for the greater good for Brand to be king, but it was not Brand's character to interfere, except when it suits a good plot twist or whatever. But that that sounds like the argument summed up basically like sure there may be some reasons for why this may have had to have happened but his character was not written that way he he didn't mm. seem to the audience to be that kind of person and so it's just a betrayal of what you thought you knew and even if he does fix things later we don't see that the show's over the yeah. books are going to be over it's like we don't get to know any of that all we see is what happens and and he betrayed his own character if if that was the case. So anyways, yeah, it's just, that seems to be where a lot of these problems kind of intersect is the character motivations and what people thought the, they knew about the characters, which turned out to not be true. Yeah. Cause again, we have a certain thing set up and the payoffs seem to be, yeah, they don't follow uh, logically here to here because the development isn't, isn't done with enough time or nuance or whatever to like help us arrive at this conclusion and go, oh yeah, yeah. I believe that. That it to me is the real problem with the writing. Um, now there was somebody up here who said something about subverting expectations. I I wanted to read it, yeah, but I can't remember where it was. But this was a big, a big, big, big thing that I wanted to mention that I have a problem with, with the, with the way it's written. So I, I can't I remember who said it, but somebody said something about uh, subverting. There's been so many comments that it's gone now. I just yeah. did a control F and I can't. Find it. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> yeah, it's gone. Um, many people are talking. I have seen articles written on this. This was a huge area of contention with, uh, like I said, Star Wars episode eight. Oh yeah. This idea of subverting expectations, right? Right. For the sake of, subverting expectations to surprise the audience yeah just just for that reason alone um i i remember reading one article that i i disagreed with so much that i was like i was literally fuming i i this does not happen to me very often usually i read somebody's opinion and it's like 
I disagree with that. Move on. <laughs> but this one in particular, just like it, 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 it really like upset me because it's just such a complete misunderstanding of the purpose of subverting expectations. Subverting expectation should never be the reason why you do something. Mm, it should yeah. be a tool that gets you to the reason, the thematic purpose of doing it, right? This the, the person who wrote this article said something like, Game of Thrones has always been about subverting expectations and right. fantasy tropes. Like, that's what its purpose is. Sure. Uh, using that's... Ned Stark as an example from the beginning, from the first season or from the first book, right? Like, you don't kill off main characters like that. That's not how stories work. Huh. And... I I just am here to so completely, like, strongly disagree that that was ever the purpose of Game of Thrones. It is not some kind of deconstruction of the genre. It is not, it is, that's not what it was, that's not what the purpose of that moment was. Ned Stark's death was to make you go, oh my gosh, I never expected that. That's so crazy. Holy crap. That's not what it that's not what it was for. That moment was to help you understand that in this world you it doesn't matter if you're the protagonist of the story, you're not protected from bad choices. If you make bad choices, if you are a character who is not intelligent, who doesn't play the game of thrones well enough, you are going to lose. Like and the whole purpose of that is to make the stakes higher, to make you appreciate uh, the importance of good decision making of, of uh, being two steps ahead of your enemy of knowing how this world operates it was a world building thing it was not mm. subverting expectations for the sake of surprising the audience so that you all go oh my gosh I can't believe it like that is cheap it is cheap to think that that is the entire purpose of of that of that uh, of that plot point. That there isn't something deeper to it than that. Yeah, that's very disappointing to find out. And the the way that they chose to subvert expectations in the the second half of the show felt like it had no thematic purpose. It was just there to try and get you to go, no, Danny, no, she can't do it. No, I can't believe it. Mm. That was the purpose of that. It didn't actually serve a thematic purpose. Hold on. Right? Colin Peluso says, um, this podcast subverted my expectations when halfway through case and revealed he hasn't watched Game of Thrones. <laughs> Sorry. That's what we do. We subvert expectations. <laughs> okay. And, and here's, you know, here's, Here's, I guess, where I'm getting at with that, right? Like, I lost my train of thought a little Sorry, bit. Sorry, I, I shouldn't have read that one. But, Maybe laugh. no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> when you do, when you make a choice like that, Kaysen will be back with us probably in just a minute. When you make a choice that strong, that bold or whatever, um... And this is just this is just the case with with storytelling. What is again? What is the purpose of it? Right, the purpose is should be, I think, in my my personal philosophy on it, is to try and say something. You're, uh, I, I think Robert McKee says something similar to this. He says uh, <clears throat> storytellers are are trying to figure figure out life, trying to figure out the world, so to speak, 
and, and they're trying to, in this artistic way, sort of like demonstrate or show, um, describe, explain life, uh, people, relationships, um, why we do the things we do, human psychology. So when you're, when you're making a choice like that, it should be for a purpose. You're, you should be trying to say something with that. And a lot of the things that happen in the, the latter half of the show feel purposeless. And, and to me, as if the showrunners believe that, that that's, what, that's what Game of Thrones was about. Like, they think Game of Thrones was about subverting expectations and making you go, oh, crap, oh, my gosh, no, what happened? That they thought that it, it, the, the, the way that they wrote those choices in makes me think that that's what they thought the show was about. <laughs> um, and, and to me, that's very cynical. The, the thought that nothing can, can end well, ever, um, every character has to have some sort of horrible, traumatic thing, you know, thing happen to them. No one can get what they want. Nothing can end well for anybody ever. To me, it came across as, as a very cynical concept that was not in line with the, the theme or premise of the thing to begin with. George didn't kill off all those characters because he's trying to have some cynical message about how cruel the world is and, you know, uh, you know, people who are too optimistic or who place, uh, you know, who, who are too, I guess, tied to their moral values, too honorable, that these people will fail that they will fall to those who are willing to lie and cheat and steal and that you know, there's no good ending for good people. That's, I don't think that that was ever the moral of the story of Game of Thrones. That was never the purpose of it. And so, but to me, the way that they wrote the ending of the story felt very much like some kind of cynical message like that. And I'm not saying that I wanted it to have a happy ending. I'll just put that to bed right now. That everyone should have had this beautiful ending and resolved all their problems in the ways that's perfectly satisfying. And there's, you know, there should always be consequences and compromise and all of that. But especially Danny, um, Aria in a lot of ways, or Aria, um, a lot of these characters, John, like the, the payoffs did not feel like they were in line with the initial setups or the development along the way to get us there. It's felt a lot of it felt very contrived. Like I said with Danny earlier on, right? She was upset that the people loved John and they were like, you know, drinking with him and laughing and they love him more than me. And she found out who he really was. He's the actual heir of the Targaryens, the real heir to the throne or whatever. And so she's all afraid that they're going to want him instead. And so many people I saw arguing were like, yeah, her entire reason for flipping going crazy, she, she loses her best friend, you know, uh, some of her most loyal people have been there all along. The pain of that in conjunction with finding out, oh my gosh, this person's going to uproot me and become the king and the people are going to want him instead. And I, I mean, I get it. 
I, I think that that's a starting point for the character to start losing it. But I think you need a lot more time to sort of delve into that to put to, to get me to the point where I believe she's just going to torch entire city of innocent people. Where for the entire show, it's always been protect the innocent, torch the the oppressors. But in addition to that, they they the the reason that that felt so contrived to me was because they were trying to really play it off with Varys and Tyrion talking back and forth about John, right? Like, I don't think it matters if John wants to take the throne or not. Because he kept saying, I don't want it. I am the heir, but I don't want it. I refuse the throne. I, you are my queen. I follow you. And, and she's like, don't tell anybody the secret. Everyone's going to try and, like, plot to get you on the throne. He's like, I, I won't accept it. I refuse, right? And and you have Varys and, and Tyrion's saying things like... "Um." I don't think it matters what he wants as if like John has no choice in the end. Like the people are going to choose him. He's going to have to accept it. Now go back to Amon, Maester Amon Targaryen, the, the, the maester of the Night's Watch. When he talks to John and he reveals he was the actual heir to the throne. He refused it. Guess what happens when the heir refuses the throne? It goes to the next guy. <laughs> you, you are allowed to refuse the throne if you want. He refused the throne. He took the black and he was like, I don't want no part of that. And guess what? His brother became the, the king instead of him. There is no reason why that could not have happened here. Why John could say, I may be the heir, but guess what? I don't want it. You're the next heir after me. You can still have it. There was no reason for this to become the conflict that it did to the point where, and it's still even, it still just does not have enough development over time because, and, and here's where some of the worst of it comes in, right? They have this, just such an inconsistency between like the power of what, what dragons can do. How powerful are dragons really? <laughs> um, because they have like these, I don't know what you call them. These like gigantic, like, they're like, what do you call them? I can't remember. They shoot these giant arrows that like take down dragons. They're like these huge... Oh. mechanisms with these giant arrows and they like shoot them. I, it's not, I don't know what they technically call that. Some type of siege weapon. I don't know. Ballista. Thank you. Yes. These ballista. ballista. From Age of Empires. Yeah, ballista. That's it. Um, and in one episode, it's like, oh my gosh, like these things, you know, if you have one of these, you can take out these dragons, like no problem. And then the next, literally the next episode, the dragon's just flying through, torching and blowing them all up. And it's like a total non-issue. So like in, in the second to last episode of the show, Daenerys is up flying. She has two dragons now. The one was killed and became a zombie dragon and they fought it in, against the army of the dead or whatever. They're flying around. They're like a mile in the sky or whatever. Probably not that high, but you know what I mean? They're way up there. And looking around, like, they do not see somehow a bunch of ships coming at them. And with just three perfect shots from, like, a mile away, just bam, 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 this dragon just gets taken out. And, like, three hits, crashes and dies. She has to, like, flee and, like, fly away. And it's like, holy crap, these ballista, the ballistae, whatever you call them, the ballistas. Um, these things are, like, dragon killers. It's like you can't win against those. You have one dragon left. And they've got an entire wall full of these things. They've got a whole ship out in the in the freaking bay with all of these things on them. And the next episode, Danny 
flies down, just takes out the entire freaking fleet of ships, blows up all of the ballista along the wall. None of them even come close to hitting her. They get like three shots off total. She just torches the entire thing by herself. No need for an army. This one dragon is basically a nuke. She takes out the whole thing by herself on one yeah. dragon. And now they're sitting there waiting. The, the Lannister army throws down their weapons and gives up. They have won. They have completely won. The, the battle's over. They've given up. They, they cannot fight this dragon. And the person who has wronged her for all this entire show, she has always gone after the oppressors to protect the innocent. She's there to liberate King's Landing from the tyrant. And she's literally on a dragon. They ring the bells and say, we surrender. She could fly straight up to the castle right now, have her dragon torch the freaking window where Cersei Lannister is sitting and end this whole thing and liberate the city, which has been her entire motivation from the very beginning. And she decides for absolutely no reason at all to kill everyone in the city, to just burn and torch the entire city. With, she's not being pressured. They're not in the way. The people aren't trying to stop her. They're completely afraid of her. A dragon has flown over and just like blown the crap out of the entire defense of the city. And she torches them for no reason, for no reason at all. Mm. I mean, if you had tried to set it up to where it's like the people were somehow still resisting her. <laughs> Or, or maybe like the, the ballista were set up so that she, she could not attack the wall. She had to fly in and like try to get them to surrender somehow by torching the people and hoping that, you know, some innocents are going to suffer. But this is the only way to get them to back off or to give up the fight. There was nothing like that. The, the people were completely a non-factor. She had already won and she just kills them for no reason. It's unbelievably bad writing it's hmm. the the inconsistency of the power of the dragons setting up the situation i mean there's a million million smarter ways you could have set up that situation to where they could have had some semblance of a reason she could have felt some justification in having to kill some innocent people right and then you yeah. could have had some believable tension between her and john and the others later like i can't believe you did that there was literally nothing standing in the way. She had taken it all out herself. There was n nothing stopping her. And she just kills them all anyways for no reason. Um, so anyways. Anybody else have something to say? If I yes. I'm keep rambling on like anything. this. I don't even know what to pick because I haven't really... I don't really watch the show, but everyone's talking about how <laughs> just how bad it is. <laughs> this is bad writing. That's bad writing. This is bad writing. Captain um, Ironbutt says shock value again. Shock. Oh yeah, value someone said Mike better talk about the. Yeah, that's essentially what it was. Everyone's talking about the Golden Company. What is that? The Golden Company was like um, uh, an army of um, what do you call them? Cell swords, the, the uh, mercenaries. Yeah. And they were uh, kind of like out as like the first defense of the city or whatever. Oh, yeah. And she kind of just flies through and 
burns them all. So I'm not sure matter. exactly. So what, that's I'm another sure. like promise that was unfulfilled. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, the golden company has arrived. You know, like and our, our forces <laughs> are easy are evenly matched now. They they kind of made a point to say that while they're doing their like planning for yeah. the battle, like our forces are evenly matched now, um, because we lost so many in our fight against the Night King in the north, and they've got the golden company and like they've had reinforcements. So like our, where they have all the ballistas so they can kill our dragons. So we're evenly matched. And literally all of the time that she spent building an army for seasons and seasons of the show was entirely useless because one dragon was all that was necessary. Literally one dragon killed the entire freaking army and the entire city by itself and all the ballista and everything else. One dragon, only one. So like all of that time spent... Oh, we gotta, we gotta like go to this city and like get this army, and we gotta go here and like convince the Dothraki to follow me, and like get on the ships and have ships mm-hmm. mates we could sail across and take our army there, and then you know make alliances with the the, the different houses in Westeros, and you know get them on our side, and you know uh, win the love of the North by going and fighting for them. Oh, that, that reminds me, I completely forgot to say, she was all pissed off or upset that the people loved John so much, right, as they're celebrating their win of beating the Night King, mm-hmm. that uh, that she's, like, you know, freaking out about this. But literally moments before that, they had toasted her. Like, the, the wildling yeah. Tormund guy was like, to the queen of the dragons or whatever, to the dragon queen! And everyone's like, yeah, the dragon queen! They're all, like, chanting because she, yeah. she helped save them. They liked her. <laughs> But Not they enough. didn't know her intimately like him. So it's just yeah. nonsense. <laughs> Everywhere she went, she knew she had to earn the love of the people that she was liberating through action. She had to fight for them. She had to show them that she was on their side. And, and they didn't love her at first. So she had to she had to take the time and effort to get the people to love her. So, of course, there's some distrust, especially after all the North's been through. They've lost their original lord but then they lost king rob they lost like they've they've just been through so much like that yeah they they've attached to this person who comes from their part of the world you have to earn their love like you did every single time before anyways again i feel like her shift into madness was way too quick not enough development and was completely contrived whenever i hear things like that i usually think of the star wars prequels (laughs) it's like but even, I don't know, it sounds like those, uh, Velhart saying even the Star Wars prequels had a better descent into darkness than Danny did, and the prequels were terrible. Uh, Velhart also says Danny's dragon kills a three-year-old sometime earlier in the show, and it haunts her for a long, long time. Yeah. And then in season eight, she's like, kill a lot of three-year-olds, and she doesn't care. Yes. And again, again, my entire argument here is that it's not that that is impossible. You can right. have a character change into that kind of completely cruel exactly. tyrant, but you yeah. have to earn it through development. You have to set it up with your foreshadowing. Like some people say, she has the, the capability of cruelty in her and ruthlessness. Okay? We got the foreshadowing. Now yeah. develop the character to where I believe she's, she's willing to do that. They didn't earn that at all. They needed way more time if they wanted me to get, to get me to believe that. Um, yeah. uh, Jonah the man saying uh, storytellers try hard to incorporate subversive twists into their stories but destroy the internal consistency in the process that's yes. a really good point that's a good way to put it 
the yeah. the, lo the logical internal consistency. Yeah, he says this it's happens when writers prioritize the surface level spectacle spectacle over the substance and consistency of the plot. Well, and that's actually, I yeah. guess, really at the heart of like where the show lost me because the show originally, so. heard, yeah. the show was originally about characters. It was driven. It was it was a character driven show, and it was so interesting to follow the choices these characters made and to understand the reasons why they were doing what they were doing. And there was so much nuance in the interactions between the characters, so much subtext in it too. I was watching one scene. It was like unbelievable. The subtext that was there. If you had not seen, like if you just were implanted into that scene, you'd never seen anything about it beforehand. Mm. There's so much you would miss because it's like Cersei talking to Joffrey, making these kind of like underhanded threats or, or, um, uh, taunts to each other and and you don't really know is my mother like is that what my mother's trying to say to me there's just so much subtext in it and so much nuance and it's all about the characters and this this generic fantasy plot upon which it sat served as just a setting for this to take place in with um you know some elements there to keep the characters moving forward and to have some stakes but that's not what the show was and in the second half of the show, they abandon as much of that character work as possible in favor of the spectacle, in favor of the save the world from the zombie army and big war, uh, you know, set pieces. They, they, they worked to those moments and abandoned all of the really great character work that they had been doing for, for seasons one through four. Um, and for me, that's when it really started to slope. This, this show really started to lose me in season five as it, that decline began. And season five, I still think is okay. <clears throat> I don't think it's terrible. Season six, I was like, you oh, know, this is, this is starting to feel underwhelming to me. This is below the standard of the show. And then season seven, I was just like, wow, this is actually really bad. I mean, just full of logical inconsistencies, really pushing towards big battles without regard for the setups and, and the reasons why we were here to begin with. Mm. And then season eight, I mean, they just, they just, you could tell they didn't care anymore. They, they were ready to move on to something else. It was just yeah. obvious. Um, and so anyways, I think that that's probably, Oh, I'll just list a couple of other things that I thought, but I'm not going to get into detail on them. Cause I think you guys understand yeah. like the, the, the crux of my criticism of the writing. But they had this whole prophecy with the Lord of Light, right? Like the one true God that the Red Woman worships. Um, and her prophecy, she thinks Stannis is going to be the one. And he pulls like that fire sword out. Like the very first time you see her, she's talking about this prophecy. And he pulls the fire sword out and he's got like that flaming sword about how this, there's going to be this hero that fights against the Night King. And there's debate about whether that's supposed to be Jon Snow, whether that's supposed to be Stannis Baratheon, whether, who that's supposed to be in the prophecy. They, they spend a lot of time, a lot of, um, a lot of screen time sort of like setting that up and uh, do nothing with that later on in the show. So that's one thing. Um, Arya, Arya's story was one of my favorites through the first three seasons. Really, really well done. And then by the time she actually goes across the sea to Bravos and uh, starts training with the faceless men, um, 
that all resolves so quickly. She's there for what seems like a few weeks, maybe, maybe a couple months tops. And I'm supposed to believe she becomes this assassin <laughs> after sweeping floors for for two months inside of the inside of like their little castle or wherever where they train people. And now she's able to do all the things that her mentor, uh, Jacques and Hakan or whatever his name is, can't remember could do where she could like take the faces off and and really that only boils down to murdering walder Frey, you know like she uses the face to take on you know an identity of someone in the castle and murders walder Frey after feeding him like her his sons or whatever inside of his pie that was literally the whole point of her learning to become an assassin was to murder walder Frey. it didn't actually play any larger role in the overall story at, at that point she became a worthless character that they um, completely abandoned the aforementioned prophecy I talked about to make her be the one to kill the Night King, which was nonsense. Absolutely no reason. Totally unearned. And and the whole scene, again, is just completely ridiculous. Like, Bran is sitting there next to the tree in Winterfell, and they are surrounded by a bunch of freaking zombies, like a whole circle around him. And the Night King kills... Uh, Theon, and he's walking up to Bran there, and out of nowhere, poof! Arya shows up screaming her lungs out and jumping in the air to try and attack him. You're telling me that not one of those like 400 freaking zombie dudes in the semi in the circle surrounding tried to stop her or saw her? How did she even get in there? She screamed the whole way and like let him know she was coming. She jumps in the air. It's like she's uh, this is an assassin's work. <laughs> to announce your presence by yelling and jumping at him like really really dumb um so i hated what they did with her i hated what they did with bran i hated what they did with danny and most of all with Jon snow his entire character through the whole show was all about uh you know the kind of like the honor of his father you know sacrificing what he wants uh to do what's right and his entire freaking character in season eight is just, Oh, I love you so much. Oh, you're my queen. He just says that over and over again, ignores everything that's going wrong or any possible foreshadowing makes the dumbest decisions ever escalates the situation even worse than it is. I don't want it. Uh, uh, no, I follow you. I just, he just ugh, hated what they do with him in the end. So that's it. I'm going to stop talking about this show now, but all right, sweet forever. Maybe, but, but, but it does, it does lend to the fact that I've actually been saying this for several years now that I, I saw a full mellow alchemist situation in this. Yeah. Back in season five. I was like, I think this is going to wind up being pretty disappointing and this is good for George RR R. Martin. This is really good because he can unless write. he unless he had planned what they wrote in the well in even the story. even if he did even if he did again yeah. again if you develop it right you can earn that so sure. but sure in any case this is great for two reasons one i think allowing the showrunners to finish the show off a certain way allows you to have um because let's say they had followed each other pretty closely to the end. A lot of mm. people would have said, oh, I watched the show ending, so now I know how the book ends. I don't need to buy the last book. Uh, so people don't need don't say that But anymore. now it's like the, the, it's not actually going to be exactly the same. There are already characters that have been killed off in the show that aren't killed in the books or that are killed mm. off in the books that weren't killed off in the show. It's deviated quite a lot. 
So yeah. there's going to be some differences. So there's actually legitimately a different ending almost no matter what. So people can still be excited to buy the book and be like, okay, cool. I'm actually still going to get something from this. There's still something to be excited about. I don't know how it's going to end based on the show. So if I was him, I'd be thrilled with this because first of all, the whole argument you were talking about, about it being canon or not, like he, he controls all of that. Right. He has been able to see some of the, some of the, uh, clap back for maybe how some of the stories had been planned to go and can either change the execution of how they're done right, or alter them altogether based on, like I said, keeping in line with your premises that you set up. You don't want to betray what you had set up before. Right. But there's lots of room to make a satisfying ending for him to do it. Yeah. The right I mean, way. if, if Danny really does make this big turn as long as you, that Will in the you, way that the shows just didn't do then it can still work it can still make sense okay it, it came through it was just a Sorry. little behind you're good okay good. yeah i agree though um so anyways um those are my thoughts on game oh. of thrones um it was so good it was so so good the first three seasons i think it really peaked at the end of season three i, I mean that's just some of the best writing i've ever seen on television and some really great character work and just just really, really, really good drama. You know, the last show that I can remember that had this much like buzz around it was Lost. Lost is a good, yeah. And people were pissed when Lost ended. People did thought that it ended wrong. They didn't like the ending. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to spoil anything here, but it's like, and I haven't even seen that much of Lost either. But it's funny that I think, I think when people get so invested over a story that spans so many years, that the the inevitability that they will be disappointed in the end is is just really high. Um, someone's uh, we got Iron Bat asking what was wrong with season four. There's nothing wrong with season four. Yeah, Mike like thinks season five and beyond. the first the first four seasons were great. The decline of the show started in me for season five. I still think season five was okay though. I don't think it was terrible. There was just it was just I saw the beginnings of it unraveling there. <clears throat> um. I, I when I when I say the season, the show peaked at season three, what I mean is that it's really hard to follow what what <laughs> happened there at the end of season three. I mean that's you can't pull the rug out from underneath the audience any harder than that. Yeah. And to me, that was also a, a kind of this is also kind of a problem with the novels too. A criticism I have of the novels is that the story is too long for its own good. It overstays its welcome because you pulled the rug out from under people really hard with Ned Stark's death. I mean, really hard. It's like, what? No, you did it probably 10 times as hard with the red wedding. I mean, it doesn't get more gut wrenching than that. But if you continue to try to build people up just so that you can pull the rug out from under them like that, it becomes fatiguing. It it loses its impact with repetition. I've talked about this with dialogue. Repetition will diminish impact. And so the more you do that, the, the, the law of threes or the rule of threes, I think, is what um, Robert uh-huh. McKee calls it. If you do something once, you know, but then repeat it again, you know, sometimes that can be surprising because you don't expect it or whatever. But um, again, not 
surprising for surprise's sake or subverting expectation for expectation's sake, but because you don't expect it and if you use it for thematic purpose, it can still really work. That's what happened with season three's Red Wedding. But if you keep doing it, people start to expect that, oh, that's all the show is. You're just going to build the characters up and then you're just going to have some horrible traumatic ending for it and it's going to be really sad and, and I don't want that anymore. I'm tired of that. You know, it's no, it's no longer effective storytelling. In my opinion, after the Red Wedding, we should have been working towards a conclusion and wrapping the story up. And instead, even the novels are really padding out that process. Um, and it began to feel like anytime something really bad happened in the show, a character met a terrible end or whatever, I just felt nothing. Um, and part of that was due to, again, the poor writing that we've been talking about for this entire time. But part of it is just due to the repetitiousness of it all. Like... The show's tone never changes. It just starts to feel cynical. It starts to feel like they think the point of the show is that moment when they can pull the rug out from underneath you. And I think they expected that to be what people responded with to Danny's uh, burning of King's Landing. But it was the total opposite. And anyways, I've talked at length about why I think that is. But no. I just got this great I got this great image in my head when you said pulling out the rug from under you. Yeah. Of you know how those people who uh can take like a dining room dinner set and then pull the tablecloth out and everything yep. stays. Yep. And then you've got the Game of Thrones showrunners and they're just like pull the cloth out and, <laughs> and all the stuff flies like, off. It all falls and breaks. The point and is, like what's the important stuff on the table? Well Dang it the food the glue if you can pull the rug out one second Kason. one second you had said uh what what's the important stuff on the table that's when we lost you the important stuff on the table is the cups the china the the dishware whatever right and if you can pull the the rug out so to speak pull the tablecloth out and preserve what is important on the table still then that's what's impressive that's the amazing thing that people want to see if you just pull the rug out and all the important things come with it, then it's it's like, oh, what did you just do? That was stupid. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing. Here. Ah, we could make a whole video about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's about time we move on. We've been going for a while here. So let's, uh, let's get yeah. into our community stories real quick and wrap up. Um, first one here is from uh, Jay Lee, and he did a Post Malone cover. I'm going to put the link to this. Of course, in the um, in the description of the videos and uh, and everything later, but I'll also give it to you guys here in the chat if you want to check out Jay Jay Lee's stuff. Jay Lee is here with us in the chat, uh, but this is his uh, cover for Post Malone. I, I, now, if I'm not mistaken, I think that this was a school project. Uh, he's he's doing um, he's studying. Uh, I don't know if it's um, audio engineering or uh, music composition. I'm not sure exactly. He could probably clarify for us, but I believe that this was a part of a project for school. So I'll play this for uh, a couple minutes and then uh, we'll move on.
Okay, I'm going to pause it there um, just uh, for the sake of time. But uh, I, I'm a big fan of the, the style there, uh, going for like a Red Hot Chili Peppers sort of vibe. Um, on on the original uh, on the original song, which I've actually I don't I don't really I've not listened to Post Malone, so I don't really know uh, his music that well. Um, but I'm uh, I'm a big fan of the sound that you've created here. Definitely has that Red Hot Chili Peppers vibe. Uh, good work on yeah. that. Um, nice nice job. He says uh, Jay Lee says fun fact. I was friends with Posty years before he became Post. Haven't heard from him since mm-hmm. though. Dude, that's crazy. Cool. And I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> That he, he hasn't been in touch with you, but um, big fan of the the work you did here, though. Uh, good stuff. Okay, let's move on to our last question of the day. This one comes from Patreon from Hat eighty nine, who's also with us. Any thoughts, concerns, gripes, compliments regarding the new Star Trek Picard trailer? You all have talked about Star Trek The Next Generation in a positive light in the past. I think it's obvious a decent Star Trek show has been made in the past 25 years. But it's interesting that the the new show will be taking place after Voyager and is in the prime timeline. None of this reimagining business or retcon of history or prequel crap. Also, it focuses on a single main character and Picard, of all people, which is different than the usual Explore the Galaxy type show. It has my interest, but my expectations are low. Um, I haven't seen it. So uh, this was actually something kind of funny. Um, so Kaysen, you know, you know, Zeb. Um, yeah. Zeb is uh, somebody I work with. Uh, he he did uh, YouTube, similar types of YouTube videos to what we did for a long time when we were doing yeah. Dark Pixel. Um, you know, the visual effects driven short little filmmaking stuff. Um, and he had this idea for a a modern Hollywood blockbuster sort of like take on Buzz Lightyear um, where it's all like, like a, a Chris Nolan toned kind of, um, you know, take on the character or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's really, really funny idea. I thought it was hilarious, but the, the best part about the whole thing was at the very end, the, the, the reveal of the name of the movie comes up as Lightyear. That's <laughs> like, that's like, dude, <laughs> That is such, that is so true to the trend of Hollywood <laughs> blockbusters, right? I wouldn't put it past him, dude. Uh, light year. You know, you have this, this edgy <laughs> twist on like, and, and so the fact that the show is called Picard to me and, and that, 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 that it seems to be moving in this direction where it's all about like this exploring this other side of the character, you know, uh, I don't know. There's part of me that feels like, um that it's a little cheesy, uh, a little bit of an kind of a, an expected sort of like modern take on a character, a classic character like that. You know, we're going to go to like the dark side, explore like uh-huh. the, the unknown parts of the guy's psyche. You didn't know. Not, I don't know for sure that that's, I mean, I've read the premise of it. It's going to be um, diving a lot into his, um, his love of archeology, span which is, was a big part of a lot of the episodes. Mm. Um, so it's not going to be so much like a space, exploration thing as much as a an exploration of the Picard character as an old man 20 something years after his time on uh, on the Enterprise and I, I think Patrick Stewart is great I know that he um, he worked a lot himself um, 
on the premise of the show. Uh, he, he had a lot of input on like the direction they were taking it. A lot of this is coming from his experience playing the character and having certain areas of the character he wanted to maybe explore a little bit more. So that part of it, to me, at least has me intrigued. Like, I'm at least interested in seeing what they do with it. Um, and especially if it isn't like a typical Star Trek show where you have the bridge uh, crew that you follow and you know, episode to episode as they explore space. It's not really going to be that. So it's not going to be TNG. Um, it's going to be, it's probably going to be something that feels pretty different. And I think if you approach it that way, um, maybe it could be pretty promising. But again, I have no idea who the showrunners are. I've not seen their work before. I don't know who's writing it. <laughs> um, so I don't really know what to expect, but you know, I'll give it a chance. Um, I'll give it a chance. I know from the teaser trailer we've seen, we haven't really seen much, but I don't know. I don't really have too many expectations other than I think Patrick Stewart's pretty great. And uh, I'm excited to see at least his ideas on like what this character would become in his twilight years, so to speak. That's about all I have to say about that. Um, I, I haven't seen it. I should go check that out. <laughs> but I, I never really watched Star Trek either. So that's mostly Mike's thing. Okay, guys, that's the end of the podcast. Appreciate you tuning in and watching. Um, next week, we'll be back uh, to talk about pixel art, and uh, I think that next week's episode is going to be a lot of fun. We'll have some some guests on um, and get some good insight on it, I think, from people who have who have done pretty extensive pixel art on like published games and stuff. So um, should be a good time. Uh, until then, have a great week. Peace out. Thank you.